Hey, Alpaca Pals! As you know, Katie and I are on break right now to work on putting together the next season of the show. But in the meantime, we're popping into your feed every few weeks to share an older episode of Alpaca My Bags. Today's episode is all about tour groups. With many people looking to book their summer travel, we're sure that some of you are thinking about going on a tour. I love this episode because our guest, Jess Brooks, who is the founder of a tour company called Eternal Landscapes, breaks down for us all the sustainable and responsible practices that we should be looking for in the tour companies that we decide to invest our dollars in. So with that, let's dive in. Once upon a time, I took a tour. It was the one and only tour I've ever taken, and it was with my friend, Philip. He came on the podcast recently to tell us about his experience moving from Canada to the UK. If you want to go back and listen, that's episode 61. So Phil and I hopped on this tour bus, and it took us all through the Scottish Highlands. I will admit that I was always a bit skeptical of tours, Pretty much all of the traveling I've ever done has been independent. I like that because I get to make all the decisions about my trip. I can travel as slowly as I want, I can spend days how I please, and I get to decide where my dollars go. But I know that this kind of independent travel isn't for everyone. And there's tons of benefits to group travel. So I can assure you I'm sure I'm going to dabble in it again in the future. Today, we want to dive into tour group travel in depth. Tour operators sometimes get flack for their practices, while others seem to be doing a good job when it comes to responsible and sustainable practices. Today, we'll explore the impact that group travel has on our planet, and we'll learn how to figure out which tour operators deserve our dollars. Here to discuss is Jess Brooks. She is the founder of Eternal Landscapes, a Mongolia-focused tour operator that aims to keep the benefits of tourism within the local community. Welcome, Jess. Thank you. So tour groups are a really popular choice for travelers for lots of reasons. I think the main reason is probably because lots of the logistics of your trip are taken care of for you. So a tour group will usually provide you transportation and itinerary, and it'll take care of where you stay. So you don't have to think about any of those things, which is great. And I totally see the appeal of this. Are there any other reasons that you think tour groups are such a popular and a good choice for some travelers? Yes, I, I think they they provide a framework for someone with a specific need. Often we get independent travellers or people that have travelled independently before but now have a very specific time frame. So maybe they have family or maybe they have full-time work and they want to experience a country but they don't have the time to do it independently. Another example is accessibility. So you have people now with illnesses or disabilities or accessibility issues that want to travel I mean, some of them may have become ill since they used to travel. You know, maybe they traveled independently previously. Or some people with disabilities actually want to travel and have the right to travel. And uh, often it's hard for them to maneuver through the logistics of traveling independently. And so tour groups can help them navigate those challenges. Another example, uh, female travelers 
your safety in numbers and uh, especially if uh, the company is providing the female guide as well. So there are different sort of reasons why people do join a tour group. It's not just ease. There's also everybody's sort of got a personal reason as well. And I get the sense that there's like different sort of styles of tour groups as well. I know I took one in Scotland that was very <laughs> like youth focused. So it was all like people in their 20s and it had like a specific vibe to it. Whereas I've seen like other tour groups that have other angles and focuses. So it seems like there's a lot of diversity in the, the sort of type of tour that you can take. There really is. And, and that's something that when you're looking into traveling to a country, you have to look at what the actual style is, this, and not just the the sort of the focus of the company, but also the style of the trip. As an example, we at Eternal Landscapes we don't offer highlight tours. So highlight tours are very bucket, we call them bucket list or must sees or ticket off or uh, highlights. We don't do that at all because that tends to make it quite fast paced. And often highlights are only created by tour companies or by guidebooks. It's not necessarily that the local people in that destination consider them a highlight. So we at Eternal Landscapes, we don't do highlights because that often creates that sort of sense of urgency. And also it can change who is attracted to your style of tour as well. So if you just try and make it more about experiencing the country as it is experienced by the locals, then you open up to a wider uh, group of people. And that makes it, that's what we find makes group tours quite exciting for us anyway. And I, I also just have to admit, you've like pinpointed why I did not enjoy my Scottish <laughs> Highlands tour because I was uh, like, I had never taken a tour before. I didn't know what to book. So I just booked this one that came recommended to me and it was for sure a highlights tour. And it just felt like tickless travel. Like we were being shuffled from one place to another just to hop off the bus and take some photos and then hop back on it. And I was on this tour with a friend of mine. And we were totally exhausted. I remember on day three, we opted out. We said, no, we're going to stay at the, the hostel because we don't want to get on the bus today. So we ended up just staying back and like going for a walk on our own because it was just too high energy. And it was just completely like the opposite of the kind of travel that like I normally would engage in. As a tour operator yourself, do you have any insights on what the sort of norms are when it comes to tours? It really does depend on the company that's offering the group tour. It depends on whether they are a country specialist, uh, so we are, we only operate in Mongolia, or whether what they call themselves a multi-destination specialist. And then it also, I think, depends on their philosophy as a business. So if it is profit-driven with stakeholders and investors, then often it a norm is large groups taking them, like you said, herded from A to B, tick list. The smaller, more independent companies, typically the trips tend to be slower, even if they're shorter for whatever reason, Some because some group tours, you know, like you said, can be four days, some can be longer, but each of those group trips will be usually slower a more organic and a more flexible experience. So I wouldn't say there is a specific norm. 
I would just say that it really does depend on the style of the company and their philosophy as a business. How would you say someone, like I'll use myself as an example, as someone who had never booked a tour, I didn't really know where to start or what I was looking for. As someone who would want to book a a group tour, what do you think they should think about when making that decision? And I guess what I'm asking is how do you figure out what type of tour aligns with the kind of travel that you'd like to do? I would say don't rush it. First, look beyond uh, TripAdvisor. A lot of people use TripAdvisor as a way of sort of um, looking into recommendations and for reviews. I would say take your time and really, really search on the internet. Ask friends, ask family, and also look beyond sort of what comes up on the first, second or third page of SEO search. The problem being that the smaller the company, usually they're the ones with the actual local knowledge, but they can't compete with the large companies with a marketing department and a marketing budget. So often they're hidden away on page, I don't know, 9, 10, 15 of a search, internet search. And also spend time clicking through on links. So even if you come across a company that doesn't actually have what you're looking for, but you like their philosophy, well, probably they've got the knowledge to be able to offer you what you want, but you need time to... So if you don't see immediately, if you see a a company that you like, but you don't see immediately what you want, then don't just sort of say, oh, no, they haven't got it. Get in touch with them. And that's what I mean by time. Give yourself time, because then you can go beyond sort of the paid advertisements. You can go beyond what Google decides you should see and you can uh, you're at Facebook as well actually social media but if you want to go to a specific destination then spend time on Facebook or social media looking at the images and then seeing who posts them and then following through links Uh, that's what I do when I'm looking to go to other countries and it seems to work quite well. Mm -hmm. That's a really good point about SEO too. I think a lot of people don't understand sort of the mechanisms behind what gets a company placed and placed on the first page and basically like these large tour companies because they have so much marketing power behind them, they hold the authority. So basically any tour that they offer is going to be that first hit. Absolutely. Yes. So I've seen some debate within the travel community about whether or not tour groups are a more responsible way to travel than independent travel. With independent travel, you have full control over where your dollars go, which I believe is a good thing. It just places the responsibility of making the right choices on the traveler individually. But with group travel, you have less control over where your dollars go. And this is where I see criticism of operators sometimes coming up because there are tour operators that are great for hiring locals and working with local businesses, which means that your dollars are going back to the communities you visit, but some of them are not doing this. So as a tour operator yourself, what do you think in general tour operators are doing right and doing wrong? Wrong, I would say often they are selling a country based on a stereotype or a cliche. As an example for Mongolia, 
if you look at websites that are selling a tour experience, often it will say, come and experience a country where little has changed or the way of life hasn't changed since the time of Chinggis Han. And that's false. Uh, Mongolia is a very exciting destination. It still has a traditional way of life, but the local population fully embrace 21st century. And also they're very good at change and they're very good at adaptation. And that's not a new thing. That's been part of their culture for centuries. So definitely for tour companies, tour organizations, it is that it is they sort of put across this false stereotype, this false cliche. What they do right is I think if they have the country where the they really care about the country where they're operating, and this does depend on obviously the tour company and its size, but I think they can really, really put support structured support, positive structured support back into the local economy. That's through many different means. That's through tax, that's through social insurance. Uh, It's also through obviously employment, but it's also education as well. Because often if people are employing local people, if it depends on the company, if they're just employing guides that work the tourism circuit and work for different companies, it doesn't work always. But if they are creating employment opportunities, then often what they're doing are inspiring these people that have the opportunity to work in tourism. And then that often filters down. So what we've noticed is we employ only female guides and we have a low season training program. It's completely free and any Mongolian woman can join it after she's we've interviewed her. And what we've noticed is what they learn, they then, a lot of them are teachers, and then they pass that on to their students or on to their own children. So that's something I think that it can be done right, is the impact, the positive impact that a company can have back into the local economy and the local community. Again, it comes back to very much the size of the tour operator. And there are some big companies, you know, there are G Adventures, Intrepid, you know, they're B corporations, they really are doing a fantastic job at working as hard as they can, positively in the communities where they're running trips. But of course, there are other larger or same size companies which don't have that focus. It is very much about being profit driven. So from my perspective, those are two things, not necessarily, I mean, there are many, but the the wrong is definitely perpetuating this st- a stereotype, and then the right is actually supporting the community and the economy in a very positive way. Mm-hmm. And you also mentioned earlier in our conversation that Eternal Landscapes is focused only on Mongolia um, rather than multi destination. Why, when you get into like tour companies that are going to multiple destinations or countries, are you going into bad territory? Not always. I mean, as an example, we we work with companies. So we sell or we provide them with a tour experience, which they then advertise to their own travel group. So we've started working with a lot of female travel groups, actually. They're groups based on the Facebook. And and these are women that really like adventure style or cultural travel. They don't want to travel alone. They're already together as a group. And so they've sort of, we've made contact through social media or or via the website. So a lot of companies that are multi-destination do do this. 
but there's a very fine line between how a tour is operated. So if there's an agent, so we are acting as an agent for some of these female groups that we're hosting, but what we do is we don't charge more for such a private tailor-made tour, but a lot of companies use agents and the money that the company pays to the agent is then not used within the local community. So even if you're traveling with an international company, so a world specialist, multi-destination specialist, you can still check. Again, it takes time, but you can check. Do they operate the tours themselves in those countries? If not, that must mean they use local agents. So like the, some of the companies are using us. But when they use a local agent, where does the money go? Is the tour money going in just into the pocket of the local agent and they're just paying the bare minimum to the people that are running the tours? Or is the local agent then making sure that everybody who works on that trip is financially and emotionally supported as well? Are they being well represented? And that's something where it gets can get a little bit murky. Typically, the smaller the company, the more likely they are apart from individual guides, because if you just pay an individual guide, then usually it's just that one guide that is benefiting mainly from the tour payment. So it's a very sort of murky world, really. There's no answer to it. It's just, uh, I always think it's, it's just a case of really researching where, uh, how far down the chain does your money go. And that's one reason we we actually applied to be a social travel enterprise because we wanted to prove that the money when when people pay us, it really does sort of transfer further out than just sort of uh, the the main beneficiaries. So myself and my business partner, Tura. Mm-hmm. We talk a lot on this podcast about how important it is to do research when you travel anywhere and especially when you are going with tour groups or just like even going on a day trip tour. And one thing I've thought about is like, it's a good thing to ask questions. And I know I myself have emailed companies to ask for the information that I can't find. And I've thought about how doing this really puts pressure on companies because you know, like companies that might not be operating in the most responsible way, if they start getting these emails all the time, asking for this information, I feel like it can really have a have a, a good impact because you're putting pressure on these companies to actually think about these things and potentially change their practices based on what their consumers, because really we are consumers when we're buying these tours, to make changes based on what their consumers are asking for. So that is a little little area where we do have power as individual mm, travelers. Abs- yeah, definitely. And in a way, that's what, when we created Eternal Landscapes, when I say we, I'm the founder together with my Mongolian business partner. I think because he's always worked in tourism in Mongolia, I started out as a tour leader working for a UK-based company, but in different destinations. And you could see the impact, positive and negative, that tourism had. And so I think we decided, without really talking about it, that we wanted to make sure that when, if we were going to do this, if we were actually going to commit to this, then we were going to do it in the only way that made us feel comfortable. And that was making sure that we had as positive impact as, possi- as possible. 
And so one of the things I've learned to do is to be very open to receiving emails. Because I think if you can be open and you can show that, you know, we make mistakes, we're human. You know, we don't have this marketing team, we don't have this marketing budget. So it's myself and it's Tura and it's our our team that provide is team of drivers and tr- team of um, trip assistants and then the families that we work with. So that's it. That's who we are. And so, yes, we're, we're human. We make mistakes, but I'm always open to receiving those sorts of emails. And I see it as a journey because you learn things as well. Sometimes people ask a question that we haven't actually thought of, you know, or they raise something that we haven't thought of. And so that can lead down a path, us down a path as a company Somebody asked quite a few years ago why we didn't have a our responsible tourism policy on the website, and that was just it was just an oversight. So on it went, um, and it gets revised. So I find it quite exciting. I like those challenges. If somebody does challenge us on our philosophy or what we do, it stops it all getting a bit mundane. Uh, you know, if you're being bombarded by inquiries, which is fantastic, but sometimes those challenges take you out of that a little bit and make you realize the excitement behind you know why you set up the company that you did so to anybody that's listening go out there and do challenge i think it should become part of the sort of planning process really for anybody looking to book a trip so go go ahead and do it <laughs> yeah i can even say like just in hosting this podcast like we get feedback often from listeners and it's not always easy to hear or to read, but it always helps us grow. And it's become something that's really integral to the show because we have to recognize like we're not an authority. The show is just about learning together. Like I am learning just as our listeners are. And every time we hear from a listener, like their perspective on something, it really helps us to like shape our own perspective. And it's really integral to like the growth of the show and just our thoughts about responsible travel as well. I think it's important to have that kind of like open dialogue. Absolutely. You might just sometimes need a extra cup of tea to, you know, <laughs> to give you the strength to read through it. But I, I think yeah. it's important. I really do think it's an important part of running uh, any kind of enterprise or business that you have to be open and accept that you're not perfect and, and, and to respond to feedback. And if you do that, if you have the flexibility and the openness to do that, it can lead you on a very exciting journey. You touched a little bit on it, just about the impact that tourism has on destinations and countries. And could you talk a bit about these impacts, um, maybe the good parts and also the bad parts? And this isn't like specific to tour groups. It's more just about tourism in general. A bad impact would be swamping a destination and that can be any size of company it really could peak season there's always a peak season every country has a peak season and peak season is when a majority of companies will make their maximum profit so it can it can just I mean we've all heard the term over tourism and and in a way that's quite similar but I I call it something different I I look at it that if you're swamping a destination then all you're getting these international visitors looking at all the the local sites but they haven't you're sort of cancelling out the local culture because all it is is just these large tour groups or small tour groups it doesn't matter what it what matters is is it's peak season there's lots of international visitors and so 
in a way it's harder to connect with what the local country is, the local culture. But on the positive side, what can be done is to go break away from peak season and focus on low season. And that's something that a lot of companies are now doing. And I think that's very exciting. It's something we've always done. We've done from day one. But as more companies jump on board that, to me, that's thinking, I don't like the expression, but it's the only thing I can think of, thinking outside the box. So they're looking at, okay, instead of swamping a destination, let's do something positive. Uh, It helps to extend the employment season. It helps to regulate the income of those that are providing the logistics, so the drivers or the guides. And it also helps um, with host families or with local infrastructure such as hotels. And it also helps on natural resources as well. So I think that is something positive, that very positive impact that people or or, uh, companies can have on local destinations. Uh, One of my massive bugbears (laughs) is, especially when it comes to Mongolia, but I've worked in other countries and I've seen it elsewhere. So you're driving from A to B, and uh, especially if it's a, a big road trip, In Mongolia, there's very limited infrastructure. So there's very rarely public toilets en route. So, you know, you have a toilet break and that means sort of heading off into the bush, whether there's a bush there or not, and having your pee and coming back. But what a lot of tour companies weren't doing was doing what we call the toilet talk. So reminding people that there's there's no toilet, you're going to have to dig a hole. What are they going to do with the toilet paper? What are female travellers going to do with any sanitary items? And we, I noticed this when I worked for the other company. And so when we set up Eternal Landscapes, we decided, okay, we can't resolve this on our own, but what we can do is do the toilet. So I trained our trip assistants to do the toilet talk on day one. So, um, and it doesn't always work. You know, it can't work. If it's pouring down with rain and, uh, or it's blowing a hoolie, or, you know, they're, they're, or, or it's winter and, it, the, you know, the ground is frozen solid and you can't actually dig a hole. So there are always challenges to it. But that's, that's what probably my biggest, biggest, one of my biggest bugbears about the impact that tour companies have on a destination. And it would be so simply simple to be resolved if everybody, if all companies just sort of highlighted to their travellers what to do during the toilet break when there aren't actually any toilets available. Mm-hmm. And so I guess a bit of it is there should be some onus on tour operators to take the time to educate people on tours about local issues and local practices that they can do to reduce their own impact while they're there on tour. Absolutely. So I know you created your tour company, Eternal Landscapes, with the goal of offering small group tours that are slower paced and flexible. So how would you describe the tours that you're operating in Mongolia and what sets them apart from other tour operators that our listeners may have um, encountered? I think for a start, we're a registered social travel enterprise. So what that means is that we can demonstrate that we put our profit not just back into the business, but back into the local community and back into the local economy. We're not 
profit driven. So we look at the bigger picture. What we actually do is we go out as a team, either myself and Tura, or we pick up knowledge from our teams when they're out on the road and we research all of Mongolia. So we go to all provinces. And then what we do is I receive the information and it just stays just stays on a Trello board. It just hangs out there. And then I look at ways, we look at sort of, so Mongolia has four very distinct seasons. So we look at those seasons and we look at what local people do within those four seasons. So would a Mongolian typically go on a camel trek in the height of the summer in the Gobi Desert? No, because it's just way too hot. So we're not going to do that even though that wouldn't be the optimum time for profit. So then I create these experiences based on our own research and based on what sort of works within the Mongolian seasons as well, what's more natural. Also, Mongolia, we look at 21st century Mongolia. So as I spoke about, you know, the stereotypes and the cliches, let's get rid of those. So let's then put 21st century Mongolia within those itineraries. Part of that in the low season, so our guides are all uh, women, that's on purpose. I'm a female. Somebody gave me an amazing opportunity and so I wanted to be able to do that for other women as well. And also in tourism, there's very much a circuit, as I mentioned, I think. So guides often work for many different, multiple uh, companies and they just do what I call the tourism circuit. But what happens when somebody wants the opportunity to work in tourism? It might be for financially, it might be for an, a sense of adventure, it might be just for time out for themselves, having brought up a family. Uh, it might be to help further their English so that they can study abroad, all different reasons. And what happens if no, they're not given the opportunity to do it? You know, often you hear, how do I get the experience? to be able to do something. So we decided, okay, we're going to provide the experience. And we do that as part of our low season training school for Mongolian women. And it's very informal. We just do it once a week in the low season in our office. And often we run trips outside as well. And it's just a way for them to develop their confidence. And then once we decide that they're ready, we put them on trips and we, you know, and, and, uh, together with a team of our male drivers and our male our trip assistants uh, tend to be younger more dynamic and our drivers are older uh, more traditional they're all men and so it's a balance we find uh, works very well and so our group trips were actually created as a way of being able to showcase the skills and the knowledge of our team and also then the families in the projects that we work in long-term community partnership with. So rather than being, okay, how much money can we make? How many highlights can we put in? It was a case of, okay, how can we showcase the knowledge, the skills of our drivers or our trip assistants together? And, uh, okay, where are these families that we work with located? How do we create an itinerary that fits in that as well? and also works within Mongolian culture and traditions. And the fact we limited it to six was because as when I was a tour leader, I worked for a company and they did do small groups, but I came across <laughs> companies where maximum tour size was, you know, 24 plus. And I thought that, no, I just can't. And, and I've handled tours of 24 and I struggled 
And I thought, no, Mongolian gear, uh, if you have 24 people in there, again, it's it would be swamped. You would be swamping, you know, the whole of the actual local experience. And it'd be more about Westerners talking about, you know, how they did Bhutan last year and how next year they're going to go to Madagascar. And uh, <laughs> um, so we didn't do a profit and loss sheet or, uh, you know, or forecast, uh, which maybe we should have done. But that's how we came to what we decided we would do, the maximum group size of six. And it works very well. I did notice, like, looking at the tours that you offer, each of them seem to be focused on sort of one central experience. They all have a sort of theme to them. Could you talk a bit about the different themes that are offered and why they're offered in that way? Yeah. So Mongolia is quite a remarkable destination, but it's very diverse. So not just the landscapes, but also the ways of life as well. If you read quickly about Mongolia, often it comes up about the herding way of life. And that's an integral part of Mongolian culture. But this immensity of landscapes as well also creates a diversity of life. So you have this remarkable, the throat singing, you have uh, remarkable musicians, you have in Western Mongolia, the Kazakhs, and they still retain the tradition of hunting with golden eagles. So what we try and do is look at, I have a list, an ever you know, changing list of what is Mongolia? What is Mo- and and we try and incorporate then. Uh, so if we're going to go to Hovskul, which is uh, Mongolia's largest freshwater lake up in north, in the north, what do they have? What 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 sort of is part of their culture? Um, so not just the landscape, but how do people work within that landscape, and uh, what do they celebrate in that landscape? Um, as an example, they're called the Dahad, one of the ethnic groups. So in the winter, they travel on Hovskul Lake on these horse sleds that they have created. So that's why we then decided to offer that experience. Camels, everybody, well, not everybody, but if you think about Mongolia, often you think about horses because of their skills with horses. But also what a lot of people don't realise is that camels, for centuries, the main way of crossing the Gobi Desert was by camel train. So from Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia's capital, down to Beijing. And so more than five days on a camel gets very painful and most people can't even handle five days. So we, we're not going to do the, the I whole I couldn't handle thing. one hour on <laughs> no, a camel. <laughs> exactly. We do recommend people bring padded, uh, padded cycling yeah. shorts. But, you know, we thought, well, how can we sort of get across what that, those camel trains used to be? So our Gobi trip, two-day camel trek. And of course, with vehicle support, so they can get in the vehicle, you know, they can, they can, they can, they, they don't have to stay on the camel the whole time. But that's how we sort of, we looked at what is Mongolia in its diversity. And I'm always happy to be proved wrong or, you know, if one of my teams say you've forgotten this, then, then we do the research, we explore it, can we incorporate it?
So I'll switch gears a little bit. I wanted to talk about sort of the philosophy of responsible travel a bit more. On the Eternal Landscapes website, you very directly refer to responsible tourism. And I really love how on one of your pages, you mentioned that it's difficult to pin down what responsible tourism really is. And we could literally craft an entire episode around this question. (laughs) Um, And I know I myself have debated the meaning of this phrase like over the years. I think personally, I've landed on responsible tourism being a sort of approach to travel that is sustainable and regenerative and focused on giving back to the communities that we visit. But I also think it has a sort of educational aspect, like you need to have a sustained dedication to learning about your impacts as you travel. And that's something I've sort of noticed myself, like there is no, I don't know that I'll ever be able to call myself a responsible tourist. I think being a responsible tourist means just actively educating yourself and committing to that education and making changes as you continue to learn. So what would you say responsible tourism means to you? I, I thoroughly agree with, with with that. Just because you, we say we're a responsible company, doesn't mean that it's not just one size fits all. So education, we should always continue to educate ourselves, whether as an independent traveller or whether as a tour company, as to how we can be responsible. But I think it's all about respect. So it's not just f- for respect of as yourself as a traveller. Um, but it's also respect to the people of the country that you're visiting, the communities that you're visiting, the culture, the traditions, and also to the the environment as well. That's what I think it comes down to very, very simply. And also it has to be a form of tourism, uh, travel or tourism, whatever you want to call it, that's beneficial to the people, the communities, the culture, traditions and the environment. And that's what makes it so different difficult because uh it's so open (laughs) yeah totally agree and i feel like what is uh responsible and beneficial can change depending on where you're going it's not like you have like one single playbook for every destination exactly i also wanted to touch on the phenomenon of greenwashing (laughs) which is basically (laughs) when companies co-opt the idea of sustainability to market products under the guise that they are eco-friendly so much of the time they will appear environmentally friendly on the surface but then behind the scenes these companies aren't actually living up to that promise and i think that this concept can be extended and applied similarly in the world of responsible tourism so i have noticed like especially in the last decade or so many tour operators and bloggers and other people in the travel space are beginning to use this phrase and i think that sometimes it can go into the territory of lip service So do you have any tips for how travelers can figure out how genuine a tour operator's promise of responsible practices really is? Again, it's about spending time on the website, I think, and following through, following through the links. So often on a website, you have down the bottom all the uh, membership icons. So one way is you can question the company. So if they say they're a membership, they're a member of, uh, as an example, Tourism Concern, they, they no longer exist, unfortunately. But it was all about sort of the impact that tourism has. And uh, were they just a signed up member? So you made a donation of uh, your a membership fee and that was it. 
or did they actually take part in blogs or uh, in campaigning? That I think that's important. How much time? Because it's very easy to become a member of something if all you have to do is fill in a membership form and send off a, a membership fee. But how much time do they actually, the company or the individual guide, doesn't matter, dedicate then to either sort of promoting the philosophy of that sort of their membership group or working with them or campaigning or educating and it, and it should all be able to be found on the website and if it can't be found on the website then like you said send an email and you can you can ask and a company should be able to uh, as an example we have always uh, measured our impact but it's not something I ever put on the website and then because of the covid i got given a bit of extra time and and so i i and there is no way there is no actual set way to measure your impact but we i decided well i want to measure so which families so we work countrywide with a network of families so uh, to make sure that one family wasn't receiving sort of we weren't swamping one family and one family was only receiving a minimal amount of support you know is that's something that there's it comes under the guise of responsible tourism so there are other ways rather than just memberships which i think are important you can also sort of look behind the scenes so companies should already you know there's a big focus on now plastic well that should have been from day one day one we never ever provided water in uh, you know drinking we never purchased drinking water in plastic bottles we've always from day one provided them in two 20 litre containers which we refill on route and we invite our guests to bring their own drinking bottles true they still purchase drinks on route because when you're in the Gobi and it's 40 degrees you want a cold drink you know you don't want and you get you see a fridge in a shop you're excited that the fridge is actually on and you're excited even if you never drink coke suddenly there's a cold coke in front of you you're going to purchase it and you're going to drink it and you're going to love it but i think that's it's time look at the website email the companies go beyond the spiel that's actually on the website and even even you know because often you you can actually reach out if there's a a company has a community facebook group ask to join it and then ask other travelers on it as well um so give give yourself time and go beyond just what's on the home page of a website Mm -hmm. And actually, I can bring up a tip that we learned from Natasha Daly when we talked to her about wildlife tourism. This episode was, I think, last season. She was sharing with us sort of the philosophy around how to figure out what is a responsible way to engage with wildlife. And a great tip she gave us was to look at the bad reviews of companies and tours, because if someone has noticed something questionable, that's where you'll find their commentary. So I do that now always. <laughs> <laughs> that's, it's really good, though. It's, yeah, yeah. The bad reviews, in a way, teach you more. Yeah, for sure. I also have to just share a quick story about drinking Coca-Cola when you're traveling, because I never drink coca-cola at home like just have don't have a taste for it but when we were in india i would drink it every single day <laughs> there would be a shopkeeper on the street like selling it and i would just have to have it because it was so boiling hot and i just needed like the sugar rush but it was really cool because in india they still serve it in glass bottles 
And so you would buy your glass bottle of Coca-Cola. And the first time we did it, we bought our bottles and we started walking away and the shopkeeper came running after us, yelling at us because you're actually supposed to give the glass bottle back to them <laughs> because they, they refill them. So I know that your company has a sustainable tourism strategy that you share on your website. I was hoping you could explain the sort of pillars of the strategy and how they're supporting responsible tourism. So when was it? 2015, United Nations created the Sustainable Development Goals. Um, There are 17 of them. And it's basically to a global agenda to stop or prevent poverty, uh, inequality and uh, climate change by 2030. And tourism can obviously be part of that. And so I studied the 17 goals and we use six of them as part of the framework for our sustainable tourism strategy. So I'm going to read them off. Uh, Gender equality, decent work and economic growth, uh, responsible consumption and production, climate action, life below water, and life on land. And then from those six, I then created um, 11 action points. And those 11 action points are what creates our strategy. And it's going to take time. It's not, it's not, um, it's something that's long term and uh, that I, I'll probably, I'm, I'm focusing on all 11. But as each one is, I feel that we've sort of a, reached the full what we can do to make manage our impact on that strategy then I will publish it it just provides us with a framework Um, another example is working with wildlife you know we we go to destinations in Mongolia for example the national park where the wild horses the tack horses are located well how can we make sure you know that's a wonderful experience but how can we make sure as a company we're not having a negative impact on these beautiful wild horses so um, that's why I formulated it to give us a framework to work towards as well. And so I know that you are from the UK, you aren't Mongolian yourself. What are your thoughts around foreigners starting businesses and tourism in countries that they aren't native to? And how do you navigate this? Very good question. I think so for for from the perspective of eternal landscapes, you know, Tura very much wanted, he'd been wanting to set up a tourism company for a very long time. But he needed somebody to help him. And I just happened to work, be working with him for four years. And he then suggested to me about setting up the company. And I didn't bring any business knowledge to it. But I did bring this wider knowledge of risk assessments and of being able to communicate uh, with a, a wider audience. So that's what I think we can bring and also a passion for the country as well, because sometimes the local people are, you know, we they are living within that country, and sometimes they, to them, it's normal. The Gobi Desert is remarkable. Western Mongolia is remarkable. But if they live within those landscapes every day, then sometimes it takes somebody from a different culture or a different country to actually be able to say, look, this is absolutely remarkable, guys. So I think that's what we can bring. Yeah, those are really good points. So I haven't been to Mongolia yet, but it has been very high on my list for a while now. I personally really want to visit the Gobi Desert. I am really obsessed with deserts. I just think they're such beautiful landscapes. 
Um, and I really want to eat Mongolian barbecue and do some trekking. Um, so post COVID, you will definitely be hearing from me. <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted to ask how Mongolia became so important to you, so much so that you started a business there and decided to invest so much of your life into that country. Well, I was working in Crete, and um, there was uh, I was working there for uh, worked there for. Three or four years, but I worked sort of a long season, and each season we got a, a visitor from the UK, a lovely lady, and she suggested that I became a tour leader. And um, I didn't want to leave Crete, but um, I was encouraged to do so because Crete wasn't going anywhere. I could go back to that way of life. I applied to be a tour leader. I got the position, and I went to Egypt. And then my uh, one of my colleagues there actually got sent to China. Uh, with the same company and he encouraged me to then go to China and he's from the same national park as me in the UK and he needed he was basically the manager of China uh, as a destination for this company and he needed somebody to go to Mongolia and uh, he said to me you know would you be happy to go and Mongolia had never been on my list at all. Um, I'm actually uh, a year round swimmer, uh, sea swimmer. And I've always wanted to go to places such as Tierra del Fuego, um, Newfoundland, the Falkland Islands, you know, places sort of remote places, but places where land connects with ocean. And uh, so here I was in the Mongolia, the second largest landlocked country in the world. Um, <laughs> and we flew in, we flew in over the Gobi, and just from day one, that was it. What then I had to, because I had to then tell people as to why. For me, it's the landscapes. It's the diversity of the landscapes. It's the sheer size of the landscapes. But then it's also how the people live within those landscapes. It doesn't matter if they're teachers, uh, if they're herders, what their background is. But still, the landscapes form the character and, and strength of character of the Mongolian people, and they're very tough. Uh, also, I've always mentioned about change and adaptation, and it's the way they embrace change and how brilliant they are at uh, improvisation. And that doesn't matter what age they are or what their background is. And so that's what I think got me. And I'm still a swimmer. And, uh, you know, my friends and family think it's, you know, hysterical, really, that my love, uh, <laughs> you know, the ocean, I love the ocean. And here I am. <laughs> and it's been 2006 was when I arrived. And this is the longest that Mongolia closed its borders and I couldn't get back because I was visiting in the UK. And uh, so this is the longest I've been away since 2000. Well, since I first arrived. But one thing you mentioned about wanting to visit the Gobi Desert. For me, I love the power of the ocean. And the Gobi, there are place names in the Gobi, such as Erdendele, uh, which means uh, dual ocean. Uh, there's also Bayendele, which means rich in ocean. And then Hovskul, which is the lake up in the north, the freshwater lake. Uh, Mongolians call it Dale Edge, which means mother sea. And so there is this, um, the immensity of the landscapes in a way does have the same power. As the, as the ocean, as when you sit by the ocean and, and you just really allow yourself to just to sit there and be next to it, the landscapes in Mongolia have a sort of similar effect. So I guess that's why. I mean, I'm not a natural businesswoman at all. Uh, it, was, it was not my intention to set up a tour company. I couldn't think of anything worse <laughs> personally. Um, but I got persuaded and, and we're 
yeah, last year should have been our 10th year anniversary. But of course, COVID decided to have other plans. But um, we will celebrate eventually. For sure. Mm. And what do you think the outlook is for tourism opening back up in Mongolia? Do you have any insight? Um, It will happen. Uh, It's one of the main pillars of the economy. Um, And they've had, although they've had, unfortunately, they now have community spread of COVID. They didn't for a very long period of time. So they had a really, really good COVID fight. And then unfortunately, just as things were starting to turn a corner, uh, they got community spread. But there's only 3.2 million people within the country. And I think as long as the government can handle the logistics, then by the end of this year, we should have international tourism back within the country. Uh, I mean, the country needs it. They really do. And there will obviously be, I think, you know, the minimum requirement of the two vaccination jabs and uh, negative COVID tests, but that's fine. Mongolians are more than happy to embrace all of that if it means that they can get sort of their way of life back, those that work in tourism anyway. So fingers crossed by the end of this year, the borders will be open. I hope so. Yes. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Jess. I've really enjoyed chatting with you. And you're welcome to share where people can find you and your tour company. Oh, well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. My first podcast, so thank you very much. <laughs> um, you can find us on www.eternalmiddle-landscapes.co.uk or just put in Eternal Landscapes Mongolia and we'll come up. And we're on all social media as well. Alpaca My Bags is written and hosted by me, Erin Hines, and produced by Katie Lore. Do you want to support this podcast? If so, there are a few ways that you can. You can leave a review on your podcast app or show us your love on Patreon. Pledging $5 a month or more directly supports the making of this show. The link to our Patreon is in the show notes. That's all for now, Alpaca Pals. I'll talk to you again in two weeks, and I hope you all get to alpaca your bags safely and soon. Hopefully we can all go to Mongolia in 2022.